It was the early 90s and a South African serial killer was on the loose. On a rampage of rape and murder, he sent a Johannesburg suburb of women running for cover in blood-curdling terror. In a deadly game of cat and mouse, investigative journalist Janine Lazarus was used by the police as a decoy to trap the Norwood serial killer. If we're to believe that journalists should shape the news, not make it, Lazarus broke just about every rule in newsroom ethics as she became increasingly obsessed with Gwibis Galdenais. In True Crime Memoir, Bait to Catch a Killer, she gives a personal account of the fascinating pre-digital era of the 1990s newsroom ethics and questionable police procedures. To Catch a Serial Killer is the official companion podcast series, a jackpot production featuring Janine Lazarus, Jacaranda FM News editor Marius van der Velt, as well as various guest contributors. Human fascination with serial killers, the reasons why they do what they do, it stretches back decades. Jack the Ripper, Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, and then our very own subject on which this series is largely based, Kubis Galdenates. In this episode, we'll speak to clinical psychologist Leonard Carr, a man who knows a few things about the darker side of life and who has studied serial killers extensively. Janine, let's just start off with you today. You've told me before that you've always had a thing for the darkest stories, and that obviously isn't surprising because you were a crime reporter. Where did it start? Do you know where it started? Has it always just been that way? I wanted to become a lawyer when I matriculated and I wanted to be a criminal litigator for whatever reason. I didn't even pass first year university. So the next best bet was to become a crime reporter. But I mean, even a criminal lawyer doesn't exactly deal with the lighter side of life, right? No, just it fascinated me. And right through my career... I've always found the darker side of life fascinating. And I've always wondered what, what is it that makes people do those things? What makes a, a man or woman commit the ultimate taboo? In fact, at one particular point in my life, I spent a lot of time with a late doyen of criminology, Dr. Adam Labuskachny. And she would spend every second Friday sitting in jail cells with serial killers and with rapists. And I toyed with the idea of studying criminology because I was always fascinated with it. But that takes time and studying takes time. And I was full on as a crime reporter. So um, I suppose I never took it on. But Leonard, now I would not dare to call Janine a typical woman. But the little bit of research that I've done is women do seem to have a bigger fascination with this genre, they're a little bit more attracted to this. Is there, like in all your studies, is that true, A, and B, why? I think that, first of all, when you're looking at these things, you have to realize that we're talking about human nature. This is part of all of us. If you look at a toddler, you will see sadism, you'll see hatred, you'll see murderous rage. So when we're looking at the dark side, we're really looking at a mirror of the parts of ourselves that we don't like to acknowledge that you know, are there. So on some level, it gives us an understanding. And I think for women especially, who are socialized to distance themselves from their aggressive, sadistic impulses, I think that even more so to get in touch with perpetrators and their impulses, but also victims. Because I think that also getting in touch with one's vulnerability and one's fears 
helps to, even if not consciously, develop a certain mastery over the issue. So by exposing yourself to it, it's a kind of inoculation in a sense, maybe not conscious. So there's that aspect, there's the self-understanding aspect, and then there's also the cathartic aspect. Because by witnessing and by playing out these stories in your mind, it gives you a chance, in a sense, to vicariously experience your own aggressive, dark impulses, but in a way that you don't have to own them. You don't have to acknowledge that they're yours as well. So I want to ask you a question then, because you, I refer to you a lot in my book. You're a very central theme of my book, because every time I covered people's depravity and violence, I landed up in your rooms. There were several stories that took an incredible toll. So you spoke to me about people's reaction being fight or flight. And you said, and I, I think I quote you in, in my book, saying that instead of running away, I ran towards the danger. Why was that? Well, I think that that's what I was referring to about getting mastery. I think it's like the vulnerable child in you that actually wants to run towards the danger to master it, to actually show your strength. And the further you push yourself towards the danger, the stronger you feel emerging from it. But is that normal behavior? That's exactly what I wanted to ask now. Is that normal, using normal in inverted commas? Um, yeah, normal is a very elastic uh, term because normal is really context-dependent. And so in a certain job, and of course one's attracted to a job for certain reasons, but in a certain job, certain behaviors are functional and actually serve the work. You know, when you're saying, is it normal, it's out of the ordinary. It's not average. It is normal, but it's going to places that most people would shy away from. And so I think this issue of finding mastery and testing your courage and not being vulnerable is stronger in Janine than in the average person. Janine, I just have one question as well. The first thing that you said around the society and women's place in society, right? And then obviously taking it back to to the time of the Norwood serial killer was late 1992, that kind of it's still apartheid, like, let's be honest, right? We haven't had our elections yet, and we were a very puritanical society. Does that play a role in the fascination with it more maybe then than it does now? Definitely, because the more fundamentalist, the more puritanical, the more self-righteous people are, the deeper they have to bury their dark side and the harder they have to work to deny it. So when people are too good, too pure like almost childlike in their innocence, you can be sure that deep down there's a very dark side. And that's why you find in more puritanical environments, there's often more scandals and more dark stuff that goes on behind the scenes. And you find that in more liberal environments where people are more open about their desires and their impulses and express them in a more open way, there's much less underground stuff. Leonard, what is, I mean, the crime genre, if one has to look at what, you know, Netflix or Showmax or the crime documentaries, is it a genre that is more watched by females than men? You know, and if so, why? What is it about crime that fascinates people? 
I can't really answer that. I, I don't know, you know, statistically who watches more. But I actually think that our society has become, in a way, addicted to, to aggression and addicted and desensitized. If you look at things like horror tourism, you know, why do people want to go, for example, to concentration camps, you know, which are really horrific? I think that violence has become ubiquitous. And I think the addictive element is that um, it also, because you're watching stuff and vicariously experiencing feelings, it's pumping out adrenaline and endorphins. And I think there's a very basic reason why it becomes addictive. And that is the excitement element, the excitement coupled with the desensitization. So people are watching horrific things, and they're so desensitized to it that they don't even stop to consider what they're watching. But is there, is there also a search for reason? So you, you mentioned concentration camps. So I can imagine on my bucket list, and I know this sounds horrible, would be to go to Auschwitz because I want to search for a reason, reason why why this happened and why did we allow this to happen? And I think the same way we go into serial killers for, but why and why did this happen? So do you think that that search for reason is there or am I overcomplicating it? I think the search for reason is to try and understand what it is about human nature. And the sad and scary thing about it is that there is no reason. First of all, there's stuff that's going on all around us that no one bats an eyelid about, you know. There are horrendous things happening in the world as we speak that no one's too concerned about. But if you look at the Holocaust, if you look at the genocide in Rwanda, and if you look at these kinds of events, what you find is that ordinary citizens are going about their normal life, you know, whether they are blue-collar workers or artisans, or professionals, or professors, doctors, scientists, they're all doing their normal thing. Then they go and perpetrate the most unbelievable violence and depravity. And then afterwards, they all go back to their normal lives and carry on with their professions as if nothing happened. And this was the experience in Rwanda as well, that people next door neighbors turned on, on their neighbors, and afterwards, and I've heard first-hand accounts from journalists who've come to see me, you know, who worked at that time, that people couldn't understand why people, you know, who used to be neighbors and friends didn't want to be friendly with them anymore when they'd actually murdered their entire families. So it's what Hannah Arendt called the banality of evil, you know, that there isn't actually psychology behind it. It's something about human nature that if the circumstances are right, people do these things. And it's only actually by acknowledging that we have that potential and understanding the darkness of our own nature that we can prevent ourselves from either turning a blind eye or becoming perpetrators us. If I can ask a question, you spoke about journalists and you've seen journalists. Do you need to be a particular kind of individual do journalists have a i don't know if it's a penchant for it or something different from a i don't want to say a normal human being because i don't think journalists are abnormal but is there something in the psyche of a, of a journalist who's covering violence or war or conflict that another member of society doesn't have 
Well, first of all, there's the attraction to the profession and certainly the type of situations. You know, not all journalists are covering war and violence and crime, but the ones that are, I think that there's an attraction to excitement. And just like you spoke about the serial killer needing to do what he did in order to feel alive, in order to feel something, I think that the kinds of personalities that get attracted to these situations are also people that want to feel that intensity and they're attracted to that intensity. And I think because of the adrenaline and the endorphins that get pumped out when you're in those situations, it becomes addictive. There's a certain high. But I know from having worked with people who've done that, you know, camera people and people who've done that for a long time, that at the same time, they have chronic post-traumatic stress disorder. Because interestingly enough, they are actually generally sensitive people. They are not thick-skinned people. So on the one hand, they have that attraction to excitement and to intensity of emotion. But on the other hand, they've got very thin skins that absorb, you know, all the negativity and everything. And, and that showed in, in Janine's book, you know, like, almost like a radiographer that gets exposed to too much radiation, just those periods of total breakdown or burnout. So while you're in the excitement, you don't feel it because of the endorphins and all the, the, the neurochemical stuff that's going on in the body. But as soon as you're out of it, then the horror and the stress and the imagery and, and also the concept, you know, to, to start reflecting on what you actually witnessed. For example, you know, people talking about filming someone just before they died, you know, and not knowing their name or not having had a conversation and feeling regret because at the time there wasn't a sense that this is a human being. And then afterwards, upon reflection, realizing, hold on, this was a mother with a story and all kinds of things. So there's that duality of being drawn to the excitement, but also the, the sensitivity and the tense pain afterwards. Janine, can you place yourself in that? Because I think that's a, such a brilliant answer. But since you're the person who wrote the book, are you thin-skinned? Are you thick-skinned? You know, do you need those times of reflection? Did you just go? Place yourself there for me, if you can. I spent many hours writing the book in, in, in fits of tears. And... Um, Leonard has been very much part of my journey, both as a, as a human being and as a crime reporter. Every story I covered, the more violent, the more I came unstuck. I would spend hours with mothers whose daughters had been murdered on the phone. I would hold grieving victims in my arms. And, you know, on many occasions after a story, I'd be pumping on adrenaline, but, you know, when I got back home, I'd crash. I mean, I had boyfriends at the time who would tell me that I would wake up screaming or I would shudder terribly in my sleep. And um, there's one particular part of the book where I talk about a British crime series that I was working on where we filmed six weeks of the most horrific violence. I saw somebody die every day of the week and it really winded me. I remember standing in the cemetery of Guguletu looking at a, a black rape victim who'd been murdered um, in the most horrific way and phoning my best friend and crying and her not really understanding because she lived in, in a suburb and was busy making a spaghetti bolognese for dinner 
and there was no way that she could have got plugged into the way I felt. And it was very difficult for me to explain it to anybody. So I couldn't sustain relationships because there was another dynamic to my life. I could never get somebody to understand this pull and this push, this pull towards covering crime, but then this enormous toll that it took on me. Not for a nice Jewish girl, you know. So I didn't fit into the parameters, the society's acceptable parameters for how, I don't know, a woman should be. So, you know, you try and unpack that to my parents who were a pivotal part in my book and a pivotal part of my life or to my partner at the time or even to my friends. It was a very difficult, almost a burden to carry. And that's still true because what was true for Janine then is, is true for, for reporters now because South Africa is, it's a, it's a hard place. Absolutely. And just like we spoke about people who want to go there and want to understand the human condition and want to sort of touch the essence of what it means to be human in, in its beauty and in its extreme ugliness, there are people that don't want to go there and don't want to understand so their lack of understanding is not because they're not able to, it's because they don't want to. And they don't want to acknowledge that that world exists. And so when you try and speak to them about it, it's as if you're taking them to a place that is outside of their spaghetti bolognese and it's not where they want to go. I want to ask you a question. I mean, Leonard, I've, I've seen you for a, a number of years. I think I've watched you, I've watched your career rocket, certainly. Every time I came to you, having another meltdown at any point did you get annoyed and think you know what about when is somebody going to switch the light on in her brain when is she actually going to realize that this is doing her more harm than good no that never occurs to me actually i think i believe deeply that everybody has their own journey and something that i learned very very early in my career when i was a crisis intervention counselor before i was even I was an undergrad student doing crisis intervention. I saw the power of the human spirit and how the human spirit would always triumph. And I've always trusted people's process. And I've always seen my role as to help people to understand and to have mastery over their process. So I can't say I've actually ever got irritated or annoyed with people's process. There's something else that I wanted to chat to you about, Len. I mean, I think you shot to fame, not that you weren't known before. You testified in the Oscar Pistorius trial. I was on the Oscar channel giving commentary. Okay, and there you saw an individual, an athlete who had defied all the odds and it had done remarkably, his reputation going up in flames. Again, violence committed against a woman. You were also involved in getting, I think, you know, give me some detail, the five women. What you're referring to is the Anna-Marie Engelbrecht case, which was a woman who killed her husband um, while he was passed out. And I argued that um, because she was a veritable hostage to a violent man, that she should be acquitted on the basis of self-defense because she didn't have a choice but to take a preemptive strike. Was she sitting in jail at the time? Was she facing a, a life sentence? She was, and actually the, the, what I was proposing actually comes from biblical law, 
but there isn't a precedent for it in international in any country except in international law where countries can take a preemptive strike if they threatened but normally in law for self defense to be justified as a defense the threat has to be immediate and the force you use has to be proportional to the force used against you so what i was arguing is that um if someone is a hostage and they can reasonably assume that their life is in danger and they've exhausted every legal method family advocate protection orders um they've exhausted every legal method to get out there has to be allowance for someone to to take a preemptive strike to protect themselves and so what happened in that case is that she was actually convicted of murder because you can understand that the court was premeditated murder the court couldn't say she what you know someone had bought um thumb cuffs from the hustler shop in the morning and used a plastic bag to tie over her husband's head while he was unconscious because he'd been drinking and taken tablets um, and then sat in the kitchen smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee till he died that had to be a conviction of murder but what the judge did which was amazing in my mind is she says because of exceptional and compelling circumstances she convicted her of murder but then sentenced her to detention until the rising of the court so as soon as the judge finished passing sentence and the court rose in other words the judge stood up the clerk said mrs engelbrecht the court has now risen you've served your sentence you're free to go and the judge actually apologized to her for the 18 months that she had spent in jail because she couldn't get bail or whatever the reason was and i think on on the basis of that from what i understood two other women i think one of them was anita ferreira got released from prison i just want to go back to jinning <laughs> and the reasons why we're driven to cover that human psyche and seeing the darker side and then obviously in a south african context once again being fairly puritanical fairly you know and and how that influences it almost as being a bit of a, a rebellious thing right were you a rebel when you were growing up no i wasn't a rebel at school i was a very good girl i wasn't a particularly bright student at least i was up until standard 8 and then i don't know i found i started going out with boys and didn't do very well um in matric I, I barely got a university exemption i think i was 19 or 18 when a very nice boy asked me for my hand in marriage and my late dad he he went to my dad and he asked my dad for my hand in marriage and i should have been delighted because that is the life that i should have had i mean I, it would have been it would have been you know a white picket fence you know i'd have had two children and two dogs and maybe a cat and i remember going to my dad i mean i don't even think i was in my 20s i was 19 i think i can't remember it was so long ago and i said to my father that the idea of having a kitchen tea and sitting around with the suitors my fiance's sisters and having a kitchen kitchen tea was an anathema to me and i'd be bored out of my mind so i always pushed the envelope and i i don't know if i made the right choices or not but there was no fit for me i never fitted into anybody's sort of definition of what a woman should be and it made my life very difficult and then just following up on that lenet is the once you've 
you've seen the human psyche, right? And you've seen the, the capacity for good and evil, which I believe most people don't want to see, right? People are inherently good. It's almost like it's this blinding light and that changes you, right? Absolutely. So also to go back to what Janine was saying, I think that Janine is fundamentally a free spirit. And so I think, you know, what you were saying also about the puritanical society, I think that, and you can see this as a theme in the book, that Janine will, will not allow herself to be controlled or to be predictable or to be funneled into any conventional expectation. And so I think it's always been part of her nature to push the boundaries, to test the boundaries of freedom, you know, freedom to act and freedom to, you know, having um, extreme experiences and everything. Doesn't it make me a little bit abnormal? I mean, you know. I don't think so. Sorry, I'm not going to concede on you being abnormal. Wouldn't it have been a lot easier for me or for anybody who covers violence to have just fit into a societal mode? It would have made my life a lot easier. It would have made my youth a lot easier. It would have made my life more ordinary. And what's wrong with ordinary? Well, you use the word yourself, boredom. Boredom. And I think that you have such an aversion to boredom because I think that boredom makes you feel trapped. And it's almost like someone who has a hunger for life and for intensity being deprived of that. And so conventionality or anything that is mundane or repetitive or predictable, too consistent, it would cause that hunger to build up to a point where it would become unbearable. And so you feed the hunger by looking for novelty, excitement, adventure, um, extreme situations. So I'm going to close off the conversation with, I hope this is not the worst cliched question ever. It might just be. But is there then that link between the object and the subject? Between Janine and the Norwood serial killer, where they see, well, at least she maybe saw something of herself in him. Even ob, it doesn't have to be obvious. Well, maybe an extreme in his actions, not in his, well, if you think about it, his deadness and lack of emotion is everything that Janine can't stand. And that um, extreme behavior of feeling alive and feeling that, that intense intimacy, etc. I suppose that that is maybe what makes it so compelling for her because that is a mirror of something that is part of her and, as I said, part of all of us, but maybe more part of Janine because we've already been talking about her, her desire for intensity and excitement. And that absolute boundlessness, a person who has no rules, no boundaries, no inhibition, is in a sense the extreme of course, it's the extreme to the point of evil, but nevertheless, it's the extreme of a free spirit, a person who lives totally in their own reality. So I might be stretching it psychoanalytically, but possibly that is, you know, the answer. Can I just have a, a final question, Len? And it's what we spoke about the last time I saw you while I was doing research for the book. I said that I had built rapport with him. I mean, some bizarre... Um, not rapport, I mean, rapport's overstating it, but there was some kind of connection. Was I kidding myself? 
or was he in fact duping me? Um, so both and possibly a certain reality. So first of all, you have empathy, he doesn't. And I think that when you're an empath, you empathically tune into people and you can find a little bit of humanity or emotion in them. Of course, someone that psychopathic can, can mirror you and tune into what you think you're tuning into and play it back to you. So you actually think you're getting what you're looking for. But having said that, as I said in our discussions about it, in all of us, there's fundamentally a deep need for connection. And in his behavior, you can see that incredibly deep need for connection. Only he is so damaged and his psyche is so distorted and broken that he could only get uh, an artifact of that closeness with someone who was dead, who he had basically got so close to as to be able to take their life away. You know, I mean, that's the closest you can get to somebody to be able to take their life away. The next would be giving life, like giving birth. So I'm sure that on some level, on some subterranean psychological level, maybe you did touch him in some way, and maybe there is something in what he was saying, you know, about that showed that he felt that this was important to him or whatever. But you have to believe it more on a philosophical level than on a practical level, because if you believe that psychologically he's really experiencing those things, that's when you get hooked in and become vulnerable. And I know I said it was a final question, but this is, is the, I promise you, the final question. And that is, as much as I've covered depravity, Len, and as much as I've covered evil, and I know about man's inhumanity to man, I've seen it in, in vivid technicolor, is there such a thing as pure evil? Surely someone has, as twisted as, as a serial killer, as twisted as a paedophile, as twisted as a mass murderer, surely there's got to be some grain of empathy or some humanity within them. Does pure evil actually exist? It depends what you call pure, you see, because I do believe that everybody is born pure. You know, I don't think that anybody is born evil. So everyone, to a lesser or greater extent, retains some elements of both. But understanding that helps us with compassion and helps us to keep our own humanity intact. Because you might have noticed from the way I answer things that I don't believe in this concept of the other. I don't believe there is an other. And to understand the human condition, you have to be able to see the parts of you that exist in everybody that you encounter. You've been listening to To Catch a Serial Killer, the official companion podcast series to Janine Lazarus' true crime memoir, Bait to Catch a Killer. For easy access to future episodes, subscribe via your favorite podcast app or via jackpod.co.za.